Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages every week. These powerful messages are sure to inspire you and keep you on track. Whether it's our late founder, Pastor Wayman Mitchell, or any of your favorite fellowship leaders worldwide, including Pastors Joe Campbell, Paul Stevens, Mark Olson, Tom Payne, Harold Warner, Richard Ruby, and many more, get ready to hear from God through this message. God. Amen. Amen. Good to be here uh, this morning. So appreciate uh, Pastor Campbell, the Chandler uh, congregation, the invitation, amen, to preach to this conference body. Amen. We had a great time last night. Can you say amen? Amen. Going to believe God for much of the same this morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, you turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. And as you turn there, no doubt most of you are aware of the civil war that's uh, currently taking place uh, over in Syria. That on one side you have this Assad regime that represents, you know, the Syrian government. And on the other side you have what's called the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, which is mainly uh, composed of these defected soldiers or civilian volunteers. And so this conflict has been going on since about March of 2011. And it began very peaceful. There were peaceful demonstrations. From there, it began to move into very violent protests until finally what we have today, an all-out civil war. The fallout and the lives that have been lost from this uh, conflict is absolutely staggering. Listen to some of the numbers, just a little over two years. Over 100,000 people have been killed. 50,000 have been reported missing. These include civilians who have been forcibly abducted. Four million have been displaced within the country in various shelters and camps, and over three million have now fled to other countries. And they say that these numbers don't even begin to include the tens of thousands of protesters that have been in prison. What I'm talking about this morning is that here is a generation that has been completely wiped out. They're calling it a lost generation. School systems are being destroyed, literacy rate being dealt an incredible blow. All of these reference points are now being removed. They cannot find food. Many of the children have to dig through the garbage can just to eat. But you know what's so intriguing and what actually caught my attention was this. While all the adults are dying from the battle and they're arguing over politics, what is killing off these little innocent children more than even the war itself is dirty water. Do all the health clinics being damaged, destroyed, all the fighting. They can no longer think with me, deliver to these little children the most basic and the most fundamental of all necessities of life, which is clean water. I mean, no, water is very precious. It's the most needed, the most life-sustaining thing on earth. And again, not just any water, because how many know you can have dirty water that's filled with all type of contaminants and pollutants, and it's just as deadly as having no water at all. So I want you to think with me again. Here's an entire generation being lost and dying 
because their parents or the generation that has gone before them, for whatever reason, they have failed to keep the water clean. Listen to me this morning. If we're going to see another generation of our fellowship go forward and have revival, I believe it has a lot to do with you and I making sure that the basics of our fellowship, the basics of who we are and what we do, things like our vision, standards, discipleship, church planning, world evangelism, the willingness to risk all for the sake of the gospel. If we're going to see that, we're going to have to make sure that these basics don't become contaminated. Just like the water in Syria, if the next generation is going to survive and make impact, we're going to have to make sure that things stay clean, pure, and unpolluted. The text we're going to read this morning, God is looking at a generation. And it is a generation much like the one in Syria. He is looking at a generation of people, his people that are being lost. And in the text we're going to read, God is going to give you and I a picture, a word picture of dirty water. And this is his reason that he describes for a lost generation. I want to preach a sermon I've entitled Another Generation. Ezekiel 34, verse 15. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost, bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between ram and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture? You must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture. Have drunk of the clear waters that you must file the residue with your feet. As for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what you have filed with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, scattered them abroad. Therefore, I'll save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. I will judge again between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord. Have spoken. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning by the grace of God. Lord, I thank you for this conference body, your people, good people, God, committed to your kingdom. God, I'm praying that you'd speak to us. Have your way with us this morning. Open our hearts, God. God, I pray, Lord, take your words and go where I cannot go into the human heart, beyond the flesh. God, I'm asking you, Lord, if I would speak anything amiss, you remove it from their ears. But if it is your spirit, your word, and your truth, God, may it find the good soil, the soil of the human heart. May it bear fruit unto repentance, God, even fruit that remains. I give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name and all God's people said this morning. Amen. Amen. I want to consider firstly with you the issue of influence. His book on uh, uh, leadership, John Maxwell, talks about uh, uh, how how the people we consider leaders the ones that have the positions and the titles, he says that they're not really the most influential people in a given organization. In fact, he calls it the number one misconception concerning leadership is that we think it has to do with a position or a title. says, in fact, that if you and I were to spend some time in any particular organization, what we would find is that 99% of all leadership occurs not from the top, but from the middle of, a, of an organization that there are these middle ground figures within that organization, and they are far more influential on their peers than those who are quote-unquote in charge. 
You know, I found that one of the common mistakes we make as Christians is we underestimate or we doubt our own ability to influence. We look at the pastor or his wife or, you know, the Bible study leaders perhaps, and in our minds, they're the ones who have influence. But the truth is, how many know you may be surprised by who actually has the influence? A while back, we were at a a pastor's seminar workshop, and uh, we're there in Raleigh, and at the most recent workshop, uh, we're all sitting there, young pastors, about 20, 25 of us, and one man, he asked, Greg Mitchell was there, Pastor Greg Mitchell, he asked him, he says, Pastor Mitchell, what is the one most important thing uh, that you would say to any aspiring young pastor uh, or would be, what is the one most important thing you would say they need? Now, I mean, know, when they asked Pastor Greg Mitchell that, we were like, He's about to give us the one key. And so we're listening, man. And we're just kind of, I'm waiting for this. I got my pen out, my note. And he said, oh, you know, what's the number one thing? Well, they should have a love for the word. Have you ever been in a situation where you ask your pastor something and you're waiting for this revelation? And they're like, pastor, what should I do about this? Pray. And so that was the moment, you know, he says, if you're going to preach the word, you ought to have a love for the word. Simple enough. And so, but what stuck to me and what caught my attention uh, is that as he's talking about this, he began to explain how he developed the love for the word of God. And he's saying that as he was a young man, uh, he always remembers his dad and his mom reading their Bible. And he said, listen, but what really caught his attention uh, was not that his dad was reading his Bible. Uh, He was the pastor of the church. Uh, He expected him to read the Bible. But he said, what really caught me and helped me gain a love for the word uh, was when I saw my mom reading the word of God every day. And so I thought about this because many times, again, we have in our minds who's the influential person. But many times it's not so much that we don't we think we're influential, but we have no idea who is actually watching us. Sister Nelda, here she is impacting the next generation. I don't know if she understood, but she's there and just reading her Bible and she's impacting the next generation. You may be here this morning. And you may be of the mindset that what you do in your local church, the role that you play is not really that significant. But listen, little do you know your faithfulness, your lifestyle may actually be impacting that congregation more than you could ever imagine. I have a lady in my church. For a while, she wasn't doing well. She was drinking, fighting her husband's calling. them. Uh, just the kind of person, you know, that sits in the service And though she's there, her body language and everything about her is communicating to everybody she doesn't really want to be there. Not interested, not moved, not really impressed. Problem, though, that I had as a pastor was that this woman had great influence. She was personable. She carried herself well. She had an ability to win other ladies to her. She'd been in the fellowship for years, and so she was older, more mature. And so in a small congregation, her words and her experience carried tremendous weight. And over time, I began to notice other ladies, young saints, converts alike, they begin to gravitate to this woman and pick up her spirit. Now, my point is, this lady had no ministry. No title, no position, but what she did have a considerable amount of was influence. And this one lady's influence was literally affecting an entire congregation. 
Happy to say she's here with us. Done a 180. Amen. Serving God. Total turnaround. But my point is, influence is a very powerful thing. And if we're not careful, we underestimate our own example. In the text, what we have is the issue of leadership gone bad, or what you and I could call negative influence. Things have gotten very bad, so bad, in fact, that God is having to intervene because lives are being destroyed. The sheep are actually being lost. Verse 16, God says, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. And so think with me, God is looking at the flock and he says there's a generation that is being driven away. They're being lost. And the reason he says in verse 19, they eat what was trampled under feet and they drink what has been trampled under feet as well. In other words, God's looking at a second generation and God says all they have to feed on is spiritual leftovers and dirty water. And so spiritually speaking, what is supposed to sustain them has been contaminated. But what's worse than even that, it has not been contaminated by the world or by some outside force. It has been polluted by a generation that's gone before them. This is why God says in verse 17 and 22, he says, I will judge between sheep and sheep. Not between sheep and wolves, but again between sheep and sheep, between one generation and the next generation. Beloved, I believe this is the condition of some of our churches, particularly those that are not seeing breakthrough. They're not seeing any. I believe that converts are being lost. And I believe it has a lot to do this morning with dirty water. That those who have influence within within that congregation have failed to keep the water clean. Dirty water this morning represents churches where people have no real commitment, where the saints no longer see things like outreach as a priority. Nobody wants to go on impact teams. Prayer rooms have been depleted. The zeal for discipleship is no longer there. Our concert scenes, how many know which was once very vital to discipleship and foundational to everything we do? Now, today, most of the church doesn't even attend them. Even worse, they've been canceled altogether. People no longer have a desire to give to world evangelism. They've seen people go and come back and say later for that. All these things, no doubt there's others, but they represent dirty water. Again, it's where the very basics, the things that we have done for years, have become contaminated. A while back, I mentioned this a couple of times in the sermon, but a while back I preached at a church. Well over 200 people, great pastor, great man of God. But well over 200 people, maybe 5 to 10 people came to prayer each night before the service for revival. Has seasoned saints there. Some been there over 20 years. And the pastor begins to tell me, says, listen, you know, new converts, they come in. We get converts, but it's like they just can't get any traction. But how many know, to me, it's no mystery why they can't survive. They're drinking contaminated water. And I know there's sometimes valid reasons why the water's been dirtied. 
that there are, you know, seasons that churches go through. Or sometimes as a pastor, you have a tough year uh, and without even realizing it, the bar gets lowered. uh, Or maybe there's a real generational gap in discipleship uh, and all of these things. uh, But listen, uh, there are times uh, that even babes in Christ may be teaching babes in Christ. Uh, There's rebellions. There's church splits. Uh, I know all of the legitimate reasons why the water cannot be cleaned. But, beloved, in our text, none of these are the case. In our text, God is looking at a very sad situation, sad potential, trampled grass, muddy waters. And again, to God, this is no accident. This is no fluke seasonal thing that the church is going through. Our text, beloved, is actually a rebuke. God is rebuking a previous generation for not allowing another generation to experience the same fullness and the same blessing of serving God that they've experienced. Verse 21, you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Again, God said, this is no weird seasonal thing, but this is in fact one generation that is literally pushing against or butting the weaker generation. I want them to put a picture up. Caught my attention a little while back. Cheers, the Lord love you. (laughs) What we have here, I caught this picture, and it's a situation over in Kenya. We know a lot of the third world countries, their issue is just getting clean water. And so here in Kenya, what what you see there is a water spout. And so what happened is they begin to tell people, listen, if you'll just put chlorine in the water, because people are dying again from dirty water. And so they say, if you'll just put chlorine in the water, people will stop dying. And so what happened after a while, they begin to test the water in these people's homes. And they sold this chlorine for two cents on the dollar. They say anybody could afford it. And so they go to homes because they recognize people are still dying at the same rate. And so they go to their homes, they test the water, no chlorine. And so they go from there and they say, okay, fine, you won't, you know, take, go by the water. We'll put the water right by the water spigot. Put the chlorine, I'm sorry, right by the water spigot. That back little picture there, that is a chlorine dispenser. And they tell them, all you have to do is drop a drop or two into your water when you come and get the water. And what they found to their surprise, as they go to these people's home, test the water again, again, dirty water. And the title of this article said, the greatest barrier against clean water is human nature. Human nature. In other words, it's not this evil, wicked thing that keeps the water from being clean. It's just human nature. Beloved, I think the same is true spiritually. I don't believe that one generation is against the next generation. But the truth is, it's just kind of human nature to muddy up the waters. You know, the main way I believe this happens? If I had to sum up all the ways the water becomes contaminated spiritually... If I had to sum it up in only one word, that word would be balance. Balance. Talking with a pastor a while back, he began to tell me one of those stories. You know those stories when he was coming up in the fellowship as a young disciple, everybody was called. You heard them? They didn't own houses. We lived, he's telling me, we lived as though Jesus was coming back tomorrow. He said, yeah, we may have been a little naive, but he's talking to me. He says, yeah, but I understand today's generation is different. 
He says, I understand that, you know, you, we got to have two family income, two parent incomes. Uh, both parents have to work. Uh, he said, I understand that even guys that are called, uh, you know, they have to work that one day they may get sent out. So they may need to go to the university so they have something to fall back on. And I just kind of stopped him right there. And I, I said, you know, because I knew where we were going with this, uh, because what he was talking about was balance. And I said, with all due respect, I do respect this man. I say, you know, your generation is always making statements uh, that this generation just isn't the same. That we don't have the zeal or the same commitment that you guys had. That we don't have the passion to go out like you guys had. But it couldn't be that the vision of our fellowship, uh, the call to abandon all to the will of God, uh, could it be that all of this has been murkied and dirtied up uh, by balance? That every time you guys issue a challenge, you also give us the balance. There are pastors who have men in their church who went out, didn't work out like they planned. And now they have 55-year-old man. He's back in the congregation working at Walmart for $8 an hour. And so now that pastor, every time he preaches on calling or sacrifice or going for God, he now feels obligated, like he's got to balance it against the reality of this man's life. Well, you got to go for God, but you also got to set yourself up just in case it doesn't work. Church kids or those who come back for redirection, every time your pastor is preaching on pursuing God's destiny, now because, you know, you have a little experience, and in your mind you've seen it all, so now you begin to speak to the next generation. Well, you know, what pastor is saying is true, uh, but you also got to think about this. And you begin to bring the balance. And again, I'm not saying the intentions are evil. It's just human nature. How I many you know we speak out of our experiences? Amen. And listen, I'm not ignorant of the fact that sometimes there is a balance. But here's the problem. Listen to me. Balance is something that you cannot teach. It must be experienced and learned for itself. Amen. My children, you know, they try to ride bikes. And they're young, and you're trying to teach balance. You're trying to tell, hey, listen, when it starts falling, lean this way. And you can talk about balance all you want, but they don't get it. And they're wobbling all over. They're like, just balance. But you know the truth is how they learn balance? They get on that bike. They risk everything, falling, scrapes, pain, hurt. And through getting on it and actually doing it, they begin to learn the balance for themselves. See, the previous generation of our fellowship, they were pioneers and risk takers. They didn't have all the balance. They didn't have all the knowledge, so to speak. To them, forsake all really meant forsake all. I'm amazed today we actually have to explain or try to define the word all. Well, what do you mean by all, Pastor? <laughs> See, we marvel at the way Jesus was able to reach people. The way he was able to enlist men to do the will of God. But if you really think about it, listen, Jesus never tried to bring much balance. Jesus said things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you ain't got a life. <laughs> Jesus said, follow me. to mess. Hey, let me first go bury my Let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> Where's the balance in that? <laughs> Jesus said, come out and be ye separate, not kind of separate. 
Love not the world. Any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love God in money. Either it's for me or against me. Unless the man forsake all, he can't even be my disciple. My point is Jesus wasn't going around trying to balance everything. And it wasn't because Jesus didn't have balance, but he knew that many times what people are trying so desperately to balance is simply God's will versus their will. I so thank God that Pastor Campbell wasn't always trying to balance every statement. His preaching, as we sat there, made it seem to us that doing the will of God was the only option. We never considered, my, my wife and I, we never considered it wouldn't work. Wouldn't work? What? It's God's word. It's the kingdom. Listen to me. Balance minimizes faith. When Jesus called the disciples, he simply said, follow me. And they followed. It was a total faith move. They weren't asked, well, Jesus, what about plan B? See, balance, though it is many times innocent, listen to me, beloved, it dirties up the water. So thank I remember Tony Chase when he came back for me. All he would ever say, you know, he, he came back for me. He said, listen, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Always talking about, listen, man, things happen, but I got to preach this. There's no other option. I want to look secondly at a responsibility. Listen to the words of verse 18 of our text. It says, is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture uh, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and have drunk the clean waters that you must file the residue with your feet. Think of this with me now. God is talking to a generation about the way and the condition in which they are passing things on to the next generation. And he says, is it too little or to put it another way, is it too much to ask for you who have drunk the clean water? Is it too much to ask for you to pass on clean water. Beloved, God's staggered. He's stunned because he's not asking them to pass down something that they themselves have never had. Quite the contrary, he says, you drank it, you enjoyed the green pastures, good conditions, you benefited, you reaped of the unpolluted that was given to you by others. And so the point God is trying to make is that this is not some disconnected responsibility. Your parents say, hey, I need you to take care of your brother. Hey, that ain't my kid. (laughs) You had him. (laughs) Or your work, you know, they want to increase your workload. They want to have you working overtime. They want to do all these things, but they don't want to give you no more money. And you're like, well, well. But see, God is saying this is not some disconnected responsibility. He says, you drank the clean, you ate the good pasture. You're fat. You're strong. Isn't it only right then that you pass on what you yourself have enjoyed and benefited from? Matthew 10, 8, freely you have received, freely give. Luke 12, 48, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. How many know that's moral? This is a morality issue. That is why God is so grieved because it's understood that this is only right. Let me ask you this morning. Is it too much to ask for those who, when you got saved, you walked into an environment where most of the church came to outreach? Is it too much to ask that you still come to outreach? Just to make the waters clean. Is it too much to ask for those of you who had people follow up on you? 
Is it too much to ask for you to follow up on others? Can your pastor come to you and say, hey, I need you to invest in this couple. Is that too much to ask? Or is it right? Is it reasonable? Romans 12, 1, offer up yourselves as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. In our text, God's dealing with the heart of people, showing no concern. They think nothing of those who are coming after them. And what God is saying is that's just not right. I want to make a statement to you. A mark of morality is a concern for another generation. Acts 13, 36, Prescott Conference theme. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. See, the thought here is as you serve your generation, you're actually preserving the next generation. What one generation protects, the next generation respects. What one generation neglects, the next generation rejects. David saw it as his responsibility to pass on clean water. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. 2 Timothy 2, 2, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What a privilege and an honor to have an example that we can clearly follow. It's the blessing of church kids. Or those who are brought up in a good home. They've actually seen how things are supposed to work, and so they have Reference points. Listen to me, Pastor. Listen to me, old saint. People may leave your church. They may rebel like the prodigal, but when they have served God in an environment where the water is clean, where righteousness is upheld, faithfulness and holiness are contended for. Oh, listen to me. They may leave your church, but when they go and begin to drink the dirty water of the religious world, trust me, they will know what to come back to. Amen. Again, I so thank God that when I got saved, I came into the Chandler Church, and God was on the move. There were so many disciples contending for ministry. Adam Jargoon, Bitwell, John Cornell, Rob Michaels, Josh, Frankie Tree, Mikhail, Paul, Albert, many, many more. But my, the discipleship atmosphere in this place was intense. As a disciple, I remember going to see Pastor Mitchell healing crusades all the time. And so we had disciples, man. On Friday night, the disciples are holding their own healing crusade. I remember Jimmy Wozolowski praying uh, with this baby with a birth defect. And as he's there, I'm sitting in the back row. I'm a young convert, but again, I grew up in this environment. And I'm listening to him deal with this lady. And I'm whispering, man, it's the spirit of illegitimacy. It's the spirit. And he says, hey, are you, is this baby born out of wedlock? And she says, yes, it has. These are disciples. I remember morning prayer was packed. We were holding our own all-night prayer meetings at my house. I remember we had just had our baby Trinity Station, our first baby. And I remember there's about 20, 25 men in that place, and we're speaking in tongues. It's Holy Ghost. They're all disciples, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I wasn't worried about, well, my, my, my wife has to get some sleep. No, my wife needs Jesus in her home. I remember times we'd be running like five minutes late for prayer for a concert scene. And my phone would ring. It'd be Pastor Ortiz. Hey, where you at, man? I said, hey, I'm on my way. Well, you need to call somebody and let them know you're going to be late. But it was intense. 
there was an atmosphere where old saints would hold young saints accountable. They would pass on their wisdom, not just in word, but in action. I'm saying this all the same. When I got saved, the water was clean. And I always thank God that I got saved in Chandler and, you know, I got saved in the time of revival. But how many know that's not the case for everybody? In fact, most people in our churches are saved in pioneer settings or settings where there's just a few handful of people. And if we could be honest here this morning, most pioneer settings, even in our fellowship, aren't exactly what you consider clean water. They're marked many times by empty prayer, maybe just the pastor and his family, casual evangelism. Very few people are faithful to outreach. People who are in ministry are late. They're sloppy. Very few people are filled with the Holy Ghost. And even those that are, many times they're afraid to speak out in tongues. You go to pray for the sick and you can feel the resistance. Not just from the visitors. I'm talking about from your head usher. Many of the disciples have never even heard of a healing crusade, much less seen one, and I dare say none of them have ever conducted their own. Even in more established churches, some of the things, these things have been lost. Again, maybe, as I said, the church has gone through a season of rebellion, generational gap. But for whatever reason, the culture of morning prayer has been depleted. People are no longer committed to outreach. Passion for calling and discipleship is no longer there. And so think with me now. Now the young convert comes in, and this is the setting. This is his reference point. Now I want you to imagine, could you imagine assuming that dirty water is the way of life? Could you imagine coming into a church, nobody's outreaching, nobody's really praying, never really, or maybe you're pastoring a pioneer, world, and you never really saw revival in your mother church. And so this is what Christianity is to you. It's muddied water and mashed up grass. This, beloved, is why those of us who know better, those of us who have experienced the clean water, this is why we have a responsibility to be a good example. Because by being a good example, you give another generation a chance, an opportunity. At least they have a choice to make. I want to close and look at real leadership. So let's just concede this morning the fact that most people are leaders, or excuse me, are followers. That's not a slight. That's not a derogatory statement. It's the truth, again, of human nature. It's the plan of God. Jesus, we know, came to the scene and he said, follow me. The Bible states that he was moved with them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And so he was moved with compassion. He wasn't mad at them. It's a reality. So that being our case, if most people are followers, and indeed they are, then our text appears to be a picture of a very hopeless situation. Again, if a generation that's never experienced revival, never seen what Christianity and discipleship is really about, the waters have been muddied, and so followers cannot solve this dilemma. Followers by nature just do what they see. So most people come into our churches, and if the water's dirty, they just follow what they see, and they dirty the water more. Not even realizing it. They take on the spirit that's already there. So we're praying, you know, God, move on another generation. But that, next, but that next generation is just seeing or doing what they see the previous generation doing. So what do we do? How do we break this perpetual cycle? In our text, God's going to reveal the answer to this dilemma. Verse 23 says, I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. God's answer for this dilemma is a leader. 
Judges 2.10, when all that generation had been gathered to their father, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, which the work he had done for Israel. Verse 16, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who had plundered them. God's answer whenever the waters have been muddied up is to raise up a leader or a group of leaders who will step out and clean up the water. In our text, God raised up David. We know a man after his own heart. Mark it down. If we're going to see another generation, it's going to come as men begin to step out and lead. How I many know leadership is male? Amen. God's answer is and always has been a leader. Why is that? Because leaders don't have to see an example. Leaders, unlike followers, they don't have to see something to be inspired or empowered. Leaders only have to hear it. A leader can be in your congregation, and he can hear the stories of old. All the legend stories. When I was a disciple, we would go and street preach right in front of the strip club. We'd almost get in brawls and fights. I've heard those stories. Some of you are out there. Or a leader can hear somebody tell about when they got saved, how the prayer rooms were packed. It was electric. And when a leader hears this, something begins to rise up in the makeup of a leader. And though he's only hearing the vision, all of a sudden he can see it now. It becomes clear. He can catch it and he can do it. Real leaders will always involve an element of pioneering. Setting out, forging new ground, redigging old wells. That's why our fellowship is what it is today, because we have a real leader. Can you say amen? amen? Pastor Mitchell, think of this. He began to do things he had never seen before. You know, thank God he didn't have to see somebody discipling men before he decided to disciple men. Thank God he didn't have to see church planting in order to plant churches. That's what leadership is. Leaders can hear a vision. Read it in the word of God, and by hearing it, they begin to see it and bring it to pass. Listen, you may have been birthed in the early days, move of God. Maybe you have the privilege of being the firstborn. There's a tremendous blessing. We thank God for that. But maybe your situation is not like that, as is not the case for most here this morning. Maybe put into your hands is the challenge to bring a new season into your church. Could it be that God is calling you to revive things that have died somewhere along the way? My question to you this morning, though you may not have the title or the position, my question to you is, will you lead? Can you hear the vision this morning? No doubt this week you're going to hear the vision. Can you hear it, catch it, and run with it? See, I understand that for the most part, we have to take a new convert into the prayer room in order for them to pray. But my question, are there people here this morning that you can go into an empty room and turn it into a prayer room? That's leadership. Real leadership is you begin to create an atmosphere for others that even if the water is as it is in our text, even if it's been trampled through and muddied, by your example and your leadership, you can clean it up. USC. Football team. They were under tremendous sanctions and penalties. If you're a USC fan, the Lord help you. <laughs> but they were under incredible sanctions, probably the worst since an old SMU got the death penalty. 
But they had lost scholarships, no bowl games, all of this. Uh, in other words, for the program was in shambles. It was dirty water. Their solution was to hire a man named Lane Kiffin. Called him one of the game's brightest young coaches. One man said he's today's Vince Lombardi. And so my point is, they didn't change the players. Their solution was a leader. You know, one of the marks of a leader is when you can give something that you yourself have never had. Myself, I never had a dad to follow. But, you know, I'm leading my children not by some example that I had growing up, but rather by giving them something I myself have never got to experience. How am I doing it? I listen to the preaching. I listen to other men. I ask them how they did it. And I had to be able to see what they were telling me. We're experiencing this very thing in our church in Spring Lake. I'm getting ready to close. And it's only 40 minutes. God help you guys. <laughs> when I got there, we had a handful of men. They had never seen revival. The prayer room sounded like a library. <laughs> but I begin to speak and preach to them about what God can do. I begin to talk to them about all the things that I myself had experienced in Chandler. And I want to tell you, these men, as I begin to speak these things, something begin to rise up in them. And one by one, they begin to rise up and start ministries. They begin to show up before me to prayer. They begin to grab the bullhorn. And they're out there at 6 in the morning before the soldiers go. And 10, 15 of them are street preaching at 6 a.m. Started men, they're lighting the streets up for you. They started a ministry called Iron Sharp and Iron, and it's pretty much it's it's every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. They're up at the church at seven o'clock, and disciples are doing little Bible studies in the morning to each other, and they're literally doing something they've never seen, but they heard about it. And I want to tell you, there's something about a lead. He hears and he rises up, and he can do what he's never seen. That is the hope. For many of our churches, Matthew 23, 3, therefore, whatever they tell you, observe and do, but do not do according to their works. We know this. Jesus now is training the future of his church, future leaders. And he says of the Pharisees, whatever they tell you, uh, observe. In other words, there are times when you have to see what they're telling you. Listen, young convert, young disciple. When you hear the old saints tell these radical stories about all that they used to do, how God was moving for, listen, don't just write it off. Well, you're not doing it now. Huh? No. Can you still observe and see what they're saying? Remember Jesus with the blind man, John chapter 9? Jesus took the mud, spit on the mud, wiped his eyes, touched his eyes, and he could see. His sight was restored. There's a powerful truth here that in the kingdom of God, listen, sometimes what comes out of the mouth can cause you to see. John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me. The implication being they've only heard I've been resurrected, and yet they still believe. Faith comes by hearing. That's why we're here this morning. That's really what conference is all about. That you can come here, hear the preaching, maybe in a pioneer church, but you can hear the vision. Hear the testimonies. And something in you begins to rise up and says, you know what? I can do that. 
I get it, Pastor. I can take what I've heard back to my city, back to my church, and I can start to now, instead of looking for other people to be the example, I can be the example. Truth is, truth is, in the kingdom of God, it's like leaven in a meal. It only takes a little bit to make a difference. Leadership is so potent, listen to me, that it doesn't take a lot of people. Remember the illustration I talked about in Kenya? One or two drops of chlorine would have cleaned the water. You may be sitting here and saying, as I started this off, Pastor, I really ain't got that kind of influence. I'm not really a leader. One or two, just a little bit, just changing something in your life, just hearing from God and saying, you know what? I can pray. You know what? I, I can show up every Saturday. Let's believe God that should Jesus tarry, our fellowship will see another generation. Amen. Because I believe, I, that's what I believe. That's what we're fighting for, uh, the future. Can you say amen? amen. Let's give God praise as Pastor Romero comes. for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.